the rates that they're using aren't the true tax rate that every individual is paying. So we all talk about taxes. We hate taxes, right? Death and taxes, two things that we have. And President Biden, he recently outlined what he's calling the American Families Plan. That was back in April. It's $1.8 trillion. And one of the ways that he proposes paying for all this is he got into the IRS's budget and he increased it by $80 billion. So if you start doing all the math, over a 10-year period, they hope to recover taxes from people who have just not been paying their taxes or they're, they haven't been paying enough taxes. And they, they think that they can get $700 billion. They're going to use this money to pay for child care. Okay, that sounds really great. And they're going to go get people who are cheating on their taxes, right? So that should be worthwhile. But now we have news from ProPublica that these billionaires, and you know their names, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Michael Bloomberg, Warren Buffett, George Soros, and they're actually going to make more money in the time that it takes us to do uh, this podcast than most Americans will make in their entire lives. And when we start looking further into their money, that they are not paying anything in federal income taxes. I mean, nada. I'm talking about zero dollars. Like, take Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway. His wealth growth, $24.3 billion. His total income that he reported was $125 million. He paid $23.7 million, which is his true tax rate is 0.10%. Not 10%, 0.10%. Jeff Bezos, Amazon.com. Wealth growth, $99 billion. Total income reported, $4.2 billion. I know, it's hard to wrap your heads and arms around these type of numbers. Total taxes paid, $973 million. Okay, remember, he earned $4 billion and he paid almost $975 million. His true tax rate, 0.98%. Michael Bloomberg, true tax rate, 1.3%. Elon Musk, 3.27%. Now, I don't know about you. When we start talking about my tax rate, it's a way above 0.1%. So joining us to break this all down is my very own tax accountant, Rachel Cheek. She's super smart and she's beautiful, but too, by the way. And we're going to be talking about how you two can maybe get a 0% tax rate. Maybe. I'm not so sure. But one of the things I want you to keep in mind is that as we're talking about this, I am not giving any financial advice. We are not giving you any tax advice. You need to go to your own experts. This podcast is for informational purposes only. That's it. That's the disclaimer. So stay right where you are, because when we come right back, we're going to be talking to Rachel Cheek about how these billionaires are pulling it off and not ending up in jail. And you're also in for a special treat because after we disseminate how these billionaires don't really pay a lot of taxes, Rachel's gonna walk us through the biggest investment that you have in your life. It's probably your home and what's going on in the housing market and the 1031 exchanges. And also there's something called opportunity zone credits and you don't wanna miss that. Welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. I don't know about you, but I saw this data that was obtained by ProPublica. We now know that Bezos paid nothing in federal income taxes in certain years, 2007, 2011. Musk, nothing, not even one penny in 2018. 
And then we start looking at other people that are on this list. Warren Buffett. I mean, oh, come on, Warren. I mean, I sat right next to you during a Forbes conference. And I love this story because I was a, I was nominated as Fortune magazine's one of the most influential women in the entire country, just a hundred of us. And so after I gave my keynote, I sat next to Warren Buffett and he pulled out his flip phone. He's like, here, Kim, look at the phone that I have. And I, you know, I gave him a hard time about, you know, not having a smartphone and he could probably afford it. And then I asked him like, if he could have any stock tips for me. And he said, no, we had this pleasant conversation. And then he said to me, Kim, who buys men's underwear? And I said, oh, I don't know. And he said, women, women will always buy men's underwear. And he said, you know, do you know how old I am? And I said, no, Mr. Buffett, I'm sorry, I don't. He said, I'm so old that in order to get into women's panties, I had to buy Hanes underwear. So when I saw Warren's name on this list, $125 million of income reported, and he paid $23.7 million. Okay, that's, that's some big money. But the true tax rate, 0.10%. That's it. Not 10%, 0.10%. So, Rachel, you are my tax accountant. How come all these billionaires have a lower tax rate than I do? What are you doing wrong? <laughs> I know. I wish I could prepare your taxes and say your true tax rate was 0.1% for the year. Then I would really be your favorite <laughs> tax person. Um, now, I think when you look at these numbers that ProPublica reported, I, I think that they bring up valid issues regarding these ultra-wealthy, ultra um, the richest people in the United States, they bring up valid issues, but their comparison as far as the total tax paid versus the wealth growth, the comparison is not as meaningful as really looking at their total taxes paid versus the income reported. Um, if you look at Warren Buffett, his wealth growth of $24.3 billion. With that growth, yes, the amount of taxes he paid was only 0.1%, but if you look at the tax to, total taxes paid versus total income reported, that's closer to about 19% effective rate. Okay, well, what does the average person pay in taxes? What is the what are let's talk let's start there. What are what are some what are the tax rates? Well, right now with the current tax laws in place, um, if you had, let's say, a family of four with taxable income of about you know sixty to eighty thousand dollars, you're realistically going to be paying effectively probably less than about twelve percent. Um, with child tax credits available and with your taxable income being at that level, your highest rate is twelve percent. Okay, but. Then how does the Biden administration, they're proposing an increase in the tax rates on people making over $400,000, which is different than what you just said, but that's going to be almost 40%, right? Well, the 400000 that he's proposing, um, that basically, it wouldn't, you wouldn't be hitting 37% at $400,000. Um, he's just basically suggesting that anybody whose income is over 400000 may hit a higher tax rate than they're in right now. Right now, with the way the current tax law is, if your income is, your taxable income, married filing joint is over 415000 you'd be paying about 35%. But that's the highest rate. So with personal deductions and if you have kids and if you have mortgage interest, your effective rate may be closer to, let's say, 28%. So, But 28% is still a lot higher than... <laughs> still a lot higher than these, you know, multi-billionaires. 
Um, the difference is is that the tax um, code has always given preferential treatment to investment income versus ordinary or earned income as far as a W-2 salary. So, you know, married filing joint couple, if a husband and wife both have W-2 income, they're going to be paying ordinary tax rates. Well, these ultra-wealthy individuals, most of their income is not earned through salaries or W-2. It's all earned through investment income. So those highest tax rates are going to be at 20% um, plus an additional 3.8. So their highest rates are a lot lower than the ordinary rates that individual taxpayers may be having with just W-2 earned income. So ProPublica, they published all this information about George Soros. And then Soros released a statement. He said, between 2016 and 2018, George Soros lost money on his investments. Therefore, he did not owe federal income taxes in those years. Mr. Soros has long supported higher taxes for wealthy Americans. So he's saying, what you're saying, is that he lost money on his investments, so therefore he didn't have any income to report. Exactly, because most of his income would have been investment income versus ordinary income. So if he had losses that he actually sold, then and those would be realized losses, and that would offset a lot of maybe his capital gains during that year and would eliminate any tax liability. When you talk about losses on investments, is it losses on real estate, on stocks? I mean, what exactly is in that entire umbrella? It can be investments. It can be real estate. Um, it can be stock transactions. Um, if you purchase a stock, sell it, that would be a capital loss, which would offset any capital gains. If you are a active investor into real estate development and that building that you own you depreciate it and has losses, then those losses would offset ordinary income as well. So it depends on what type of investments these individuals have. You know, I always hear people saying, well, you know, the wealthy hide their money in art. How does that work? Well, if you purchase, and it's not just art, it would be, you know, stocks as well, um, buildings, investments, anything that you purchase, if it appreciates in value but you don't sell it, then you basically don't have any taxable income. So Elon Musk on paper is worth billions of dollars, but he may his cash flow may not match his net worth because a lot of his net worth is tied up in stock. It's same thing with art. If you purchase art and it appreciates in value but you never sell it, you don't have any taxable income. So all these stocks that these these individuals have, they've all appreciated in value, but if you don't sell it and there are unrealized gains, that's why a lot of these individuals aren't paying taxes because it's all on paper. But once they sell the stock that they have in their own companies, then it becomes a taxable event? Yes. So if Elon Musk goes out and sells a lot of his Tesla stock and has gain, capital gains, then all of a sudden his, he pays taxes on that, that income. Now, if he has other losses of other investments, then that would offset some of those capital gains. But until he actually sells the stock, he's not going to pay tax on that. So if Tesla goes up you know, $20 in a day, his net worth may go up a lot, but he's not going to pay tax on that until he actually sells those, that stock. And a lot of times they have restrictions on when they can sell. So a lot of it, their net worth is all paper. So when ProPublica comes out and they say that Bezos, the richest man in the world, paid a true tax rate of 
0.98%, and Bloomberg paid 1.3%, and Musk play, paid 3.27%. Because when I see all those numbers, all I keep thinking is that you and I sit down, I'm like, what, Rachel? How much <laughs> What are you doing wrong? Yeah. yeah, I'm like, where did that number come from? Yeah, and if you actually look at it, let's just say Jeff Bezos, with his total income reported of $4.22 billion, he paid $973 million, which is more along the lines of about 23%. His, the true tax rate that they're using of 0.98 is based on his wealth growth. So that's just if Amazon stock went up during that time period from 2014 to 18, his growth, his wealth growth increased, but he didn't pay tax on that. Just like if you and I I bought stock and it went up. We don't want to pay tax on it until we sell because it could also go back down. Are there any strategies for us mere humans and mortals that are not making billions of dollars? Are there any lessons that we can learn from the big dogs? It's very difficult for ordinary individuals, everyday people who are earning W-2 income to get a lot of these deductions because, like I said, you're going to be paying ordinary tax rates versus the preferential treatment of investment income. So if you don't have the extra cash to be investing and your growth is not based on your investments, then you're going to be paying ordinary rates. Um, individual taxpayers can take advantage of, you know, you know deducting your mortgage interest, property taxes. And, and a lot of these individuals didn't have any tax liability during those years because they donated most of their income. So you and I could do that. If, we, if you make $100,000 during the year, you donate $100,000 and you have no tax liability, but then you also have no money. So it's give and take when you don't have that extra cash like these ultra wealthy do. And that's one of the things I love about you, Rachel. You just always break things down so that I understand it. And that's why I knew you would be perfect to come on this podcast and talk about the ProPublica data. Now, you want to stay right where you are, folks, because when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into the data and then give you some strong takeaways that you can use in your life moving forward. But first, we have to say a few thank yous to our partners in this podcast because they make it all possible. Welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. We're having this great conversation with my very own tax accountant, Rachel Cheek, and she is marvelous. She's fabulous. And so we've been talking about ProPublica and we look at these charts and everybody's all freaking out and they're saying, oh my gosh, you know, they these are the world's billionaires and the world's richest guys and they're not paying any taxes and it's somewhat very disappointing to somebody like me who, you know, I mean, I work six, seven days a week. And yes, I've been very blessed and I have a great life and I have a great income. But when it comes time for you to give me the bad news, you always preface it by saying, Kim, are you sitting down? <laughs> it's, it's, it's never the news that we want to hear. But, you know, we always try to make sure that you take advantage of all the tax deductions available to you as well as all these other individuals that are, you know, everybody can take tax deductions. It's just a matter of what each individual has going on personally. And so is the data skewed in this ProPublica, I mean, as they presented it? I feel it's a little skewed. I think their comparisons aren't as meaningful as it could be if you actually took you know, data saying, okay, here's the total taxes paid versus total income reported versus wealth growth. Because they also say the average American doesn't pay these low-end rates. But 
the rates that they're using aren't the true tax rate that pe- that every individual is paying. These numbers are based on wealth growth. So if we looked at, you know, wealth growth for this regular individual, their tax rates may be just as low. So you have to compare, you have to have an app, a comparison, comparing apples to apples, basically. And that's, this article is not doing that. But, the, you know, the numbers are just so big, right? I mean, it's really hard for me to get my mind around a total income reported of $10 billion. I mean, it's, 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 I, I mean, I don't even know how you would spend an annual income of $10 billion. Yeah. And when you look at these numbers, when you say Warren Buffett paid only 0.1%, but when you look at that, it's $23.7 million he paid. That is a tremendous amount of money. Um, when you actually look at the 25 wealthiest Americans, they actually, if you look at their true tax rate, effective rate, they're closer to about 16% of what they paid. Now, that that is a lot lower than the ordinary rates that you're hearing of 37 39%. But again, that's because most of their income is generated through investment income and tax at, you know, the highest rates is 23.8%. So they still are paying their share. Um, and when you look at it as a whole, the top 10% of American earners made about half of all the income earned in America, and they paid about 70% of all the income taxes. So the top earners are the ones who are actually paying most of the tax liability in the country. Which I'm really glad to hear that, and it makes me feel better. But for for those of us here at home, you you know, we went through the various strategies to keep our taxes as low as possible because we all want to do that. Give us some quick tips. What can we take away? What can we learn from these billionaires that we should be doing? Well, I would, you know, if if you're an individual who has a, extra cash available to invest, investing your income, then you'll have preferential treatment as far as your taxable income as well. So any extra cash, you know, putting it in the stock market and having p- purchasing stocks that pay out dividends, um, any capital gains, those are going to be taxed at lower rates. Or investing in real estate development or uh, buildings. But again, you have to be actively investing in those activities to receive tax benefit. Um, Donations are also a good way to reduce down tax liability, especially being in Arizona. You can donate to a lot of the charities that qualify for Arizona state credits, and those are dollar-for-dollar credits. So there are ways for individuals to to receive tax deductions as well, just as on a smaller scale than the wealthiest. So the housing market has gone crazy. You know that over the last (laughs) year and a half. And a lot of people are buying and selling their homes. What are some tax implications for that? Well, if you are selling your home, um, as long as your gain is less than 500000 in your filing married filing joint, then you won't have any tax liability on the sale of your home. So it may be a time to sell that home so that way if you have gains less than 500000 you won't owe any tax liability on that gain. Anything over that, then it would be at the tax rate of either 20% or 15% right now with the way the tax law is. Um, if you, The problem is, is if there's no inventory to go buy another house, it may be better just to hold on to that house and stay there. But if your house is appreciated and you don't sell it, you're not going to have any tax liability. So that's where your net worth may grow, just like 
all these ultra wealthy, but you don't have to pay tax until you sell. Um, if you go out and buy a property and you start renting it, um, depending on your income levels, you may or may not have any tax liability associated with rental income if you start depreciating that home and taking all the deductions related to that. So it may be a way of creating some cash flow and not having any tax liability, again, depending on your income. And it seems like so many people now, Rachel, are getting into real estate. And you astutely mentioned a really great point that you can sell your home but the inventory isn't there for you to go out and find and buy a new home. And because real estate is on so many folks' mind, when we come back, Mike James is going to join us. Now, you know Mike. I always refer to him as Mr. Real Estate Mogul because he has homes in Phoenix and he has a home now in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so we're going to delve into more about real estate and tax laws. So stay right where you are here on Kim Commando Explains. Hey, welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. Now we're going to change topic just a little bit, and we're going to talk about real estate because your home is probably your biggest investment. And joining us is not only Rachel Cheek, but also our very own mighty Mike James. I yes. love real estate. So, Mike, tell us, how many properties do you really own? Uh, four fourplexes and two houses. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, getting, getting there. Yep. And so, and you're doing this for what reason? Uh, for retirement at, at some point. Uh, yeah, I just want to retire. And I think uh, like family wealth, too, I think I want to pass this on to other folks in my family. And so, Rachel, is Mike's strategy solid? Yes. I mean, these days, if you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket, if you diversify your portfolio in the market and in real estate, especially if you invested in real estate in the last few years, your net worth has increased probably very significantly with the way the housing market has been. So, Mike, what's your big question right now for Rachel? Well, it's in terms of, of my story, you know, so I started with one house and I bought another one. I bought a third as a rental and then I sold, you know, my first house. So maybe you could talk about like the capital gains, how you can, uh, you know, exchange your first house if you're not living in it, how long you have to live in it before you don't have to pay capital gains. That should be a pretty yeah. good start. <laughs> Yeah. So if, if you lived in your first house, let's say, for at least two out of the last five years and you're filing joint, then you can exclude up to $500,000 of that gain from your income and you don't have to pay tax on that. So if it's been a primary residence and you've lived there for at least two out of the last five years, it's a great way to avoid those taxes on that gain. Now, if it's a rental property, you don't get that exclusion. So with a rental property, if you have another one that you've had a renter in and you have a lot of gains on that, you could sell it and pay the capital gains tax on it. You've probably depreciated that property over time to help with some tax deductions. So you do have to recapture that depreciation, which typically is at ordinary rates. And then the rest of the game would be at capital gains rates, which, again, may be up to 23.8%. Or... Or, or you, you could do... take that rental property and do a 1031 exchange yes. and buy another rental property. So when doing a 1031 exchange, there's, there's lots of rules and procedures that have to be done to get the 1031 exchange completed. So I would suggest going to a company that there's many companies out there that specialize in it. Rachel, before you go on to about the 10, I tried the 1031. <laughs> 
you know, and it was so complicated. Yes. They don't make it easy. No, it, it's very complicated, so beware. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of paperwork. But if you complete it and you do it correctly, um, then you basically defer any of those gains. And the, as long as you, if you sell that property for, let's say, a million dollars, you have to take all million dollars and put it into another property. And if you have a gain on that property, you don't pay tax. It's deferred until you sell the next property. If you take out any cash at the point of the sale, then it's considered boot and you pay tax on that on that portion of the gain. So, Mike, did you do a 1031? I did, but I got a 1031 company to do it for me because, yeah, it, it is very complicated and they really don't charge much for what, what you're getting. So. No, and they do a good job and they make sure everything is, you know, done properly so you don't run into any issues as far as tax liability because what you don't want to do is create a tax liability when you think you're doing an exchange. So right. so tell us, walk us through your 1031 exchange, Mike. My 1031 exchange was my first house, and I had already been living in my second house for several years, probably about four or five years. But I didn't even try to, you know, do the two out of the last five or two out of the last six or whatever it was back then. Um, so I just went to the 1031 exchange company. I think they were in Vegas, you know, we're in Phoenix, but, uh, they were referred by somebody and, uh, they did all the paperwork. But Rachel, you did, uh, mention the depreciation. Can you explain how that works and does it work with a, a regular home or just for rental properties? Just rental property. So if it's your primary residence, you don't depreciate your residence and unless, let's say, you have a home office, and that's a whole other topic. But if it's a rental property, when you first purchase a rental property, you set it up to depreciate it either the fair market value or your cost, whichever is lower. And then you take that less the land, because there's a portion of that's considered land and you don't depreciate land, and you take that property, and if it's a it's a residential rental property, you take the cost of that and you depreciate it over 27 and a half years, which basically it's giving you credit for if the house costs you a million dollars, then you're at least getting a portion of that cost of the home as an expense for 27 and a half years. So every year you may get six or $7,000 of a deduction for the depreciation of the home itself. All right, so I want to go turbocharged here for just a second. <laughs> Gosh, Mike. I can't, I'm getting all this great information. I can't help it. Um, what about the stepped-up basis? What is that? I've never tried it, but I know there's something called a stepped-up basis on depreciation. Can you explain that? Um, well, the step-up basis is typically when you inherit a property. So let's say um, you inherited a property from a family member who passed away. At the time of their death, you get a step-up in basis for that property. So if they bought the property for 500000 but it's valued at a million when they pass away, your new basis is a million dollars. So now if you go to sell it, you have a basis of a million versus the 500000 So you're not paying tax on that gain, whereas whoever owned it before would have, you know, possibly a gain. Now, is there a limit on that or does it just go to infinity? Um, right now, it, there is no limit, but they have talked about with the Biden plan and with some other talks in the works. I mean, they have talked about eliminating that step up in basis, but but you also receive that for stock. So if you inherit a 
portfolio from someone who passed away, and all those stocks are in there, let's say they bought them 30 years ago, you would get a step up in basis at the time that they passed. They're also looking at the 1031 exchange and taking that out. So if you're thinking about they doing are, that, yeah. you probably should. You probably yeah. want to, yeah, you want to do that sooner or later. Um, another question, what are these opportunity zone credits? Opportunity zone credits basically are credits that offset um, any capital gains. So if you get into one of these credits, then it offsets any gains you would have on a, a on your capital gains. So they are basically – they created them in late 2017, and it was basically to attract investors into – to jumpstart economic growth in, in certain areas that are rural areas throughout the country to basically have investors in, invest in these properties in those areas to create growth. So if you purchase one of these or you invest in one of these opportunity zones, then basically if you have another gain, it, these credits would offset that gain. So you can avoid tax up to 15% of the original gain and defer on the remaining original gain until the sale or the end of the fund, which it looks like that's going to end in 2026. So, Mike, have you bought anything in Opportunity Zones? No, I haven't. Uh, I've looked, uh, I've seen some, and I think there's some great opportunities because um, I think, Rachel, don't in Opportunity Zones, don't they defer the taxes when you sell it? So, like, the capital gains for, like, 15 years or something like that? Yeah, so if you if you have another property, let's say right now you have a property that you're selling one of your rental properties and you have a gain, if you you would not have to pay tax on that gain if you take that money and you invest into an opportunity uh, in the opportunity ah, zone credit. Okay, so it's at the front, but I think there's something at the back as well when you sell it or if you if you wait 10 years to sell it. Maybe I shouldn't even say that because I'm not 100% sure. But I think if you wait 10 years to sell it, you get also a capital gains credit or something at the end. But you know what, Mike? I think you need to go see Rachel. I do. <laughs> I mean, do and I can look, you know, we, we could talk more about these credits for you. So, yeah, I think that's so. Um, any other tips for people at home that might be listening before we let you go, Rachel, as far as real estate and taxes? Well, if you can find inventory and buy something, it'd be great. But unfortunately, right now, it seems like there's not a lot of inventory out there. So you might have some appreciated properties and want to sell, which is a great time to sell, but you might not be able to invest back in real estate. But if, if you're thinking about doing an exchange, it may be the time to do it because right now there's proposals out there that it may go away. So, Well, Rachel, thank you for being my super smart tax accountant. So someday when I become a billionaire too, you can help me like have a lower tax rate. (laughs) We'll definitely work on that. Get it as low as possible. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel better knowing that, well, maybe these billionaires are truly paying their taxes. And if you learned one thing from this podcast, be sure that you hit that follow or subscribe button wherever you get your podcast, so that this way you get our podcast delivered automatically. And be sure to give us a great five-star review and say a few kind words about our podcast. Now, in case you're wondering, this is obviously not the Kim Commando Show podcast. Yes, my three-hour weekend radio show. You can get that as a podcast, also as a webcast, commercial-free. And there's only one place to get it. That's over at getkim.com. Once again, that address is getkim.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Kim Commando.